That is that. All right, we're going to jump in. Uh, Matthew 25 is where we're going to be, and we'll begin here. What is your dream for your life? If we were sitting down, maybe you have tea, maybe you're wearing a hat, I don't know, depending upon if you listen to Julie or not, cup of coffee, and we're talking, like, for real, if you were to consider, like, what is a dream that you have for your life? I'd be curious what you would say. The American dream was coined by a writer and a historian. The historian's name is James Truslow Adams. And in his best-selling book in 1931 called Epic of America, he described this dream. He said that this, that dream, the American dream, of a, is a, that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. I mean, it's a brilliant idea. This idea that everyone should have an opportunity to flourish, better, richer, fuller, for all. And over time, the American dream has shifted. It shifted from an ethos of equality and solidarity to one of individualism, which seeks consumption and materialism. Consider the new-built mall in New Jersey, a three-million-square-foot mall called the American Dream Mall. Uh, It's very creative in its name, but this is filled with a place, it's an indoor theme park, uh, a water park, ski slopes, high-end luxury stores. So, And the place where we thought malls were done, American Dream Mall came along and said, no, 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 no. In 2019, we're going to create a new mall that's going to exist. And man, it is the very epicenter of what the American Dream is. It's the definition of excess. And John Mark Hummer says this about the American Dream. He says, the American Dream, which started out as this brilliant idea that everybody should have a shot at a happy life, has devolved over the years into a narcissistic desire to make as much money as possible and as little time as possible, with as little effort as possible, so that we can get off work and go do something else. That's where things are going. And so in the conversation of what is your dream, I'd be curious of how much of what we think about our dream has actually been informed by this new American dream. What a miserable life to live, to try to just get free from work so you could go do something else, when in the very fabric of our design is to be one's who work and rule. See, the dream that Jesus has for you is not about acquiring. It's deeper. It's much more beautiful. So we've been in a series called Redeeming Our Rule. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this this idea of Jesus coming to redeem our rule, that we are image bearers and we're called to redeem the rule that he's given to us. And so we've talked about all sorts of things over this series. And we based it out of Genesis chapter 1, Verses 27 and 28, it's a cultural mandate that we have been given, and it says this, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, the, what God has given to humanity is this partnership that we would work with him as his image bearers and that we would create and cultivate and make this place beautiful. So over the last several weeks, we've talked about redeeming our rule and and talking about ruling through work and that we have this this gift of work that we must not try to run from because it's in the fabric of who we are. We've talked about the rule that includes the Great Commission to humbly 
teach people about the ways of Jesus. We've talked about ruling through prayer. The power and the significance of the gift of prayer that we've been given through the blood of Jesus giving us access to our Father in heaven. We've talked about ruling through our responsibility to uh, live a life of integrity and and a life of confession. Drew talked last week about ruling through family discipleship and the importance of that. And as we close out this series on redeeming our rule, I want to I end our time by considering a dream of a Christian. And the title of the sermon this morning will be Rule Through Intentional Stewardship. And that, that dream that Jesus gives to us is at the end of our life that we would be able to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That dream that would drive us into the people that God has called us to be. So I want to consider ruling through intentional stewardship. I got a couple thoughts for us this morning. The first would be a definition uh, around stewardship to, for us to be on the same page here. Charles Bug, uh, he defines stewardship as this, as utilizing and managing all resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation. See, stewardship is a Judeo-Christian concept. At the, at the very core of stewardship is this notion, this reality that God owns all things. He rules over all things. The heavens uh, and the earth and everything within, he rules. And he's given us the ability to manage his resources. That is at the very core of what uh, stewardship is. See, secularism has no concept of true stewardship because of the very fabric is a good God who's given good gifts to his creation and he's uh, challenged and encouraged his image bearers to carry out those things and to harness those things and to use their resources to make this world beautiful. See, baked into this Judeo-Christian concept is this notion that we've been entrusted with Raw materials. So if you go to Genesis chapter 2, we've mentioned this once before in the series, but it's worth mentioning once again. In Genesis chapter 2, we get this this chunk that I mentioned before. We we have the temptation to maybe fast forward over, and I would encourage us not to. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8, we read this, and so much of this has to do with stewardship. It says this, Genesis 2, 8 and following, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out... Of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we see in this middle section that we have the tendency to potentially fast forward or skim over. We read this really important section about these rivers that are put in the midst of Eden. 
And the heart that we see here is that God has provided these resources that need to be tamed and harnessed by the image bearers that he has created to use the resources that he's given to steward the resources so that we can cultivate and keep and make this place beautiful. This happens pre-sin. It happens post-sin. A garden was given for humanity to harness and use, to steward and cultivate. And that's what we're called to do, to steward these resources. Um, Tim Keller uh, once said um, that this is referencing rearranging the, the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish, that our job is to rearrange these raw materials, the resources that God has given to us to steward these things in such a way that we can harness them and make this place beautiful. So that's the essence of stewardship, that God has given resources to you. He's given you tangible and intangible gifts, and they're not for you to now hoard and own on your own, but to manage as ones who will give an account of the resources that have been given to you to manage and use and steward those resources. So in Matthew 25, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, we find this theme continued, which include both the dream that I talked about out of the gate and also the way by which we get this dream. So the second point is this. Jesus in Matthew 25 provides a story emphasizing his value for intentional stewardship. So Matthew 25, I'd love to read, um, starting in verse 12. It says this, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, verse 13 in particular, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so Jesus is in this segment, his last primary teaching in the gospel of Matthew. And in this teaching, he's encouraging his people, hey, I'm about to to leave and I don't know when I'm coming back, but I do know that you guys are going to have to wait for a significant amount of time. And in your waiting, I want to encourage you to wait well. And so he gives some parables to encourage his disciples to wait well, to wait for our master to return. And then he gives this parable to us starting in verse 14. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Again, his property he's given to his servants. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, again, the point of the parable Jesus is trying to emphasize about us waiting. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We'll pause there for a second. So we see these individuals, these servants of the master, have been given these specific talents. In other passages we see it's called a mina, which is the equivalent of 100 denarii, which is about four months of a wage. And so a pretty significant, sizable amount of money. And each took their gift, and they were responsible to steward that gift well. And so for the first one, he took their, they took their five talents and they looked to try to maximize and steward those well. And the second did the same with the two talents. There wasn't competition about who had five and who had two. We're all given different gifts. We all have different personalities. We all have different temperaments. We have different passions. We are, are different parts of the body and we're called to work together, not compete with one another, but to work together. So one had five, one had two. That's not the point of the passage. The point was that they were trying to utilize the resources that God had given to them to steward them well. And then the master returned. The master returned and they gave an account. Friends, we are a part of the story that's not done. Our master will return. Don't get sucked into the notion that we are, we are just kind of existing into forevermore, that we are a part of a story and God is not done. And he is at work, and he will come again. And then he approaches them individually. He says, Did you, were you intentional in your stewardship with the life that I gave to you, with the resources that I gave to you? This is not about earning salvation. Don't hear that at all. But it's about stewarding the life that God's given to you. It's not about earning approval before God. That's not the point at all. But it's about uh, being a steward of the resources that God has given to you. Just for clarity, Dallas Willard says this about grace. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. The point being that, that God has bestowed upon us grace, and we're responsible to be stewards of that. It's not to earn God's salvation or love, but to follow through with stewardship. And we hear this phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the pinnacle uh, motive of the Christian. Well done. You ever thought about that? Like, what do you want at the end of your life? What is the dream of your life? What are you hoping for? What are you yearning for? What are you putting your time and your effort and your gifts and your energy unto what? Towards what? And this is the drive of a follower of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, he, he says, uh, he approaches his master and he shows him what he did. The Christian dream is found here. The story continues with one who did not rule through good stewardship. We see this in verse 24 and following. He also had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's harsh. Feels harsh, right? If we're honest, we can be honest in the church. Uh, we have no palate, palate for this, especially in 2023. In our day, a day that is oozing with expressive individualism, we are taught that no one or no thing can tell us what to do, that we are the Lord of our own life, and no one can judge how we live our life. We will live our life, we will become our own gods. Uh, everything outside of what we feel is oppressive to our potential. So when we hear Jesus say something like this, we get shook a little bit because we're, this is so foreign to the, the reality of our oxygen that we live in and breathe in every day. But man, oh, how we need the words of Jesus to keep us grounded. It is wisdom. It is wisdom to hear the words of Jesus here. Friends, we need to remember the words of Jesus to keep us from regret and to keep us from becoming the people we were never designed to be. See, there is a design, a way to live life, and Jesus cares about you enough to invite you into that way. So what did this one say? A few things they said about their master. He said, I knew you to be a hard man. And then he goes on, he says, I knew you were unfair. He changed the way that stewardship is designed to be. And he says uh, that you reap what you don't sow. Which means this, that the implication is that uh, you gave to me and I'm not supposed to give back to you. That he kind of reframed what stewardship looked like. And then he says, I was afraid of you. See, what he thought about his master shaped his stewardship. The way we approach God is going to shape how we live a life of stewardship. It's a part of what Jesus is saying here. Again, A.W. Tozer says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's critically important to understand how we view God, that orthodoxy, our understanding of God, shapes orthopraxy, how we live out life. And so in light of what I thought you to be, I hid. I hid. I wanted to hide my resources. I didn't want to leverage my resources, but I wanted to hide them. And then the master said, he called him wicked or evil. He called him slothful, which the original translation could also mean timid or unready. And this is the very point of the parable, to be watchful, to remember that you have a master who's given you everything that you have and to steward those things well. So what's the point of this parable? A few things that we can glean. First is that intentional stewardship matters in life. That you're called to steward the one life you have. You don't have the person next to you's life. You have your life, and you're responsible to steward that life. We also learn that we will give an account for the life we live. You and I will give an account for the life we live. The, the, another thing that we see is a motivation, a dream. Well done, good and faithful servant, to allow that to drive your life. But don't miss this. Within the parable, there is a challenge to check how you view God. I knew you to be a hard man. I was afraid of you. See, these views of his master kept him from the stewardship he was invited into. And so it is with us. The way you view God and the mistakes you make, the ways you fall on your face at times, and how God responds to you in those moments 
or how you feel that God responds to you and your strengths when you do everything right, how you feel that God responds to you. In both ways, does God base his love on you based on achievement or merit? If that's how you approach God, you're missing the God of the Bible. See, if the grace of our Lord Jesus is not the motivator, when we fall and we will, we will bury ourselves in shame and perceived disappointment. I have three boys, um, and they've gone through phases like walking for the first time, or riding a bike for the first time, or swimming for the first time. And sometimes they regress. One of my boys crushed swimming last year, and this year he, he forgot how to swim. So we're like back to ground zero there. Um, swinging a baseball bat, all of these things that are kind of just basic to what it looks like to see kids grow up and how motivating would they feel to keep trying as they fall or fall off a bike or have to get pulled out of the pool because they're definitely not making it out on their own. How motivating would they feel if I'm deeply angry with them every time they mess up? Like they wouldn't want to do it. They're not going to want to swing the bat. They're not going to want to ride the bike. They're not going to want to swim if they only get anger from me every time they make a mistake in their attempt to try to grow. I mean, me saying something like, son, you're a Wagner. And if you're a Wagner, you swing the bat this way and you're swinging it this way. You need to be a Wagner. If I, if I just filled them with shame, then of course they wouldn't want to continue to do it. When I celebrate, man, man, good job, buddy. Like, Keep trying. Let's get you out of the water. Remember, you got to move your hands. You can't just, just flop in the water. Like, you actually got to move your hands, kick your feet, lift your head out of the water. You can't breathe in the water. Like, let's try. Like, keep going. I'll get in with you. Like, that's what's going to motivate them to keep going. And so it is with the gospel, my friends. When we see God in a way of every time we fall on our face, and we do, and he's filled with anger or uh, frustration or disappointment, that's going to keep us from moving forward. And there's a reason why Jesus ties in this parable the view of the master with stewardship because it's in this posture of knowing God's heart for us that actually motivates us to pursue being faithful with what he's given to us so that we, when we fall on our face in our attempt, we can get up and we can keep moving forward. It's the very essence of grace and it's the very essence of the gospel. So what is our dream? What is your dream? Friends, we come to the red letters of Jesus here, and we have to ask, are we ruling through intentional stewardship? What we know is that the grace of Jesus is fierce, it's forgiving, it's healing, it's tender, and it empowers us to live out this life. And so I want to consider a couple areas that we should consider when it comes to um, Areas of stewardship. It's the last point for us. That Jesus invites us to steward in a variety of areas in our life. The first would be our gifts. The gifts that we have. You have tangible and intangible gifts. Gifts that God has put within you that are just a part of who you are and how you are wired. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And it goes on and says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. So we have been given gifts. You have gifts that you have grown in through intentionality, maybe education, maybe things that you've done, uh, years of investment, maybe other gifts that are just kind of natural to who you are. Maybe you got them from your parents. Maybe it's just a part of who you are. But nonetheless, we have gifts that we're called to steward. None of these things are ours just to hoard. We have gifts to steward, personalities, passions, strengths. And it is your role to steward what God has given to you. Your job is to steward the gifts that God has given to you. So you have gifts and that mind that lead you to have the job that you have, to make the income that you have. Why? And to steward them. That you weren't given these gifts just to hoard and to make the money that you make to be able to kind of do what you want to do all of your days. I mean, you're called to have these gifts, to actually use them for the betterment of the world, not to hoard, but to be able to use them to see this world make, be made a better place. The money that you have, the gifts that you have are to be stewarded. It isn't to be hoarded. So we have gifts that Jesus has given to us. We have money that God has entrusted to us. As we have mentioned before, money isn't good or bad. It's neutral. We are responsible to steward that money. As the Puritan William Ames said, once said, he says, riches are morally neither good nor bad, but things indifferent, which men may use either well or ill. So we'll say it over and over again. Money isn't bad. If you got a lot of it, it's not bad. If you have very little, it's not bad. Neither are bad, but money is a tool, and it always has been a tool for us to steward. But what our hearts do with money is the thing that shapes and taints things. See, we are responsible to steward our income because it truly isn't ours. It's called, it's us designed to steward, and we will give an account for how we leveraged and used that money. So for those who have made good choices, that have led to fruitful outcomes. Steward those things from a generous heart, not hoarding, but one who have been entrusted to those things. For others who have gone through hardship, which have caused things to be tight for you, prayerfully walk with God and, and good counsel to take steps forward. Regardless of where you are on the spectrum of money, whether you have a lot or have little, steward what you have to move it Forward. All we can do is swim in grace and learn along the way and move forward. If financial stewardship hasn't been a strength, it's not too late to take steps, and you can do that. So we have our gifts, we have our money, we have time. Time would be a, uh, something that we need to steward. Time is our most precious commodity. You can always make more money, but you can't make up for lost time. So how we steward our time matters. If self-focused hobbies are where we spend all of our waking moments, we have to ask if we're stewarding our time well. See, your time is not your own, just like your money is not your own, just like your gifts are not your own. God has planted you in a place and in a time, not for you to waste it, but to enjoy the life you have and to use it to image him well. So we have to consider and reflection about our gifts and about our time and about our money. How are we stewarding these things that God has given to us? And lastly, our dreams. What are your dreams? 
And are we stewarding our dreams in a way that honors Jesus? See, Jesus' dream for you may not be your dream for you. And Jesus' dream for you is definitely not the new American dream. His dream for you is to live a life free of regret, abiding in his love, learning to experience abundant life. And abundant life is not just easy circumstances, but is contentment in all things. And so we're invited to steward our dreams. Dreams matter. They become our true north. They're the things that lead our life. The decisions you're making now oftentimes are because of a dream you have down the road. Dreams, they drive us. I remember uh, the summer of 2005, I was uh, studying at Asbury, and I, I was kind of in this pinnacle of, uh, of a double life where Jesus, through this friend I had at the time, um, confronted my dreams with the dreams of Jesus. And so I was leading this mission trip in West Africa, and um, I was friends with the missionary that was there, so I had some space to kind of get away with him for a little bit. Early one morning, we went golfing in Ghana. And so when you think of like a Ghanaian golf course, that's probably what it looked like. And so we played golf there, and I remember just sitting at this tee box. We were just talking. And he just challenged me. Like he kind of saw through the fluff of my double life. And he just invited me to the simple message of Jesus in Matthew 6, where it says, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And it's just a simple statement that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but for me, it cut me to the core. And it was like this pivotal moment, this shift moment in my life, where I, I was going down this path that was leading to a dead end, and I felt this gentle invitation to seek the kingdom of Jesus, to allow my dreams to be more about his dreams and less about my own dreams. It was like I woke up in that, in that moment, and, and Jesus' dream, and he has a dream for your life, and it's bigger than you. It's to seek his kingdom, not just your own, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It was never designed to seek money first or seek retirement first, but our job is to seek first God and to live a life of loving surrender to him. Friends, we have one life. We don't have tomorrow guaranteed. We have one life, and we're invited to live that life well, to steward it well. And as I close, I just want to encourage us with this truth, that when we fall on our face, along the way, when we fall on our face and we find ourselves not stewarding in a way that we feel like is honoring to Jesus with our time, with our money, with our dreams, and so forth. What do we do? You know, I have, I have felt the firsthand squeeze, and maybe some of us have, with just our, our, our moment economically. I've felt it with our, our property taxes. We got our property taxes this last year, and it like crushed our, our escrow and increased it substantially. I might be sharing too much. I've never talked about my escrow up here before, but I am. And so, because I want to be honest with you, we felt just a constricting uh, nature because of some increases over this last year that have affected our budget, that have affected with inflation and things like that, that have affected us financially. And if I'm honest with you, I've been disappointed in myself. I've been disappointed that I wish I would have planned better. I've been disappointed. I wish I would have done things a little different and, and projected the property tax and projected some other things so I would have known and been prepared, and I, I wasn't, and I've found shame rising up in my heart. 
like being shameful that even knowing that I was going to be talking about uh, stewardship this morning, if I want to get extra real with you, sometimes when you preach, you talk about things you're not very good at. And so this, uh, even in preparation for this, I just, I I felt that dynamic and I felt the nature of shame of just like, man, I wish I was better at finances than I am. And it was in that moment that I was at the crossroads of the guy in the story. I could remember that he's harsh. I could think that he's hard, a hard man. I could think that he was all of these different things like that man did in the story. Or I could remember that he's kind and he loves me. And he stewarded himself so perfectly that he gave his greatest asset, his very son, to rescue me, to, to uh, show love to me, to seek and pursue me. And that motivates me to keep going forward and trying to steward well. See, we're at, we can be at crossroads when we fall on our face and we disappoint ourselves or disappoint others. And the invitation is the gospel along the way. The invitation is the grace of our Lord Jesus to remember that we're loved by God, not based off our merit, not based off of our earning, because none of those things would move the needle for us. But in other words, we're secure and we're loved. And that's what motivates us. We can either assume that God is harsh in moments when we fall on our face, or we can lean into our Father who loves us, and that is what motivates us. Friends, we're invited to remember that we are not accepted based off what we do. We're accepted upon the grace of our Lord Jesus alone. And that is what motivates us, to live a life of stewardship, to live a life of obedience to Jesus. Friends, we are called to rule through intentional stewardship. And when we fall on our face, we cling to the gospel. And we be people that swim in the gospel until we see him again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your pursuit, your kindness, your care. And I know in our own hearts we have a tendency to just be people of religion and shame and basing like every other religion and in human history, basing our earning, basing our effort, basing our work, um, allowing that to be the scale that causes you to love us or not. And I pray that you would remind us again and again and again of the grace of our Lord Jesus. Lord, wash us. Remind us of the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you would fill us with the fullness of God. We give you thanks for your love and your care. In Jesus' name, amen.